once again to Everyday Holiness, a Faith in D podcast brought to you by the Notre Dame Alumni Association. This is again your host, Dan Allen, Associate Director of Spirituality and Service, and we're really pleased to have you listening with us today. And I am pleased to welcome Dr. Carol Latronica. She is a 1977 graduate of Notre Dame and currently the rector of Welsh Family Hall. So, Carol, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. So, beginning at your origins, where where are you from originally? What were some uh, important memories of your childhood? I was born in Buffalo and um, lived there for the first 10 years of my life. And then my father worked for the VA hospitals and we went to Chicago. So I lived outside of Chicago in Lombard, Illinois for the next 11, 12 years. And when I came here, we were outside of Chicago and Mm -hmm. um, that area. So a little bit all over. And then after I graduated from here, went to back east and uh, did my graduate work at Niagara University Mm -hmm. where I got my first degree in uh, Masters of Biology and then second in Masters in Counseling and got into the field of student affairs there. Great, great. Thanks for that overview. As you think back to your childhood, who were some of the important people that you think really shaped you into who you became? Hmm, Wow. You know, I grew up in the 60s, so it was a very um, tumultuous time, I guess. And I think about things that I can think about is President Kennedy on TV Mm -hmm. or Ruby growing up and not being allowed to go to school and watching that whole transpire on TV. Mm -hmm. Those things to me were really important in the sense of defining Catholicism, but also education. To watch a a little girl, and I still remember, and I tell the students this all the time, watching Ruby trying to go to school and asking asking my mom and dad, I think I was in first or second grade, Hmm. saying, why why can't she go to school? I don't don't understand. Why does she not have that opportunity? not seeing the difference and not understanding why someone wouldn't have that opportunity. Yeah. So that probably is when you say what what do you remember in growing up, that's something that has always stuck with me. And then being in Chicago during the 68 conventions for the political race, sure. certainly that was a time of just uprise and thinking about peace and thinking about Vietnam War and just uh, the different things that I grew up with. I think maybe I am a pacifist more than I'd like to say, (laughs) but certainly for me understanding that discourse was so important in Mm -hmm. understanding differences. So those were things that I think if you say, Carol, what formed you? Those things were really important, Mm -hmm. I think. Times where just those popped right in when you asked that question. Yeah. So I would say those things probably had more of an impact than I would say normally or what I thought previously. Yeah, it's really interesting. I just had a conversation <laughs> with my five-year-old recently, and he's trying to process the war in Ukraine. And why why is this happening? And what's what's going on over there? And it's it's different when you're a child and th- this is your first exposure to all these things and you grow up in the historical times that you do and you know th- those memories are really impactful and really seared seared on you so uh, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people 
hearing those who lived through that time can relate to that, and and really the, the way that history continues to impact us now and the lessons that we either learn from it or don't. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. I think sometimes we're slow learners. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so in terms of your faith, anything in, in childhood where you really remember moments of faith that, that were foundational for you? <laughs> There was 200 of us that made our first communion together, if you think about that. Right. Um, that probably is one of my first memories, good and bad. My twin sister was really tiny, so she's at the beginning of the line, and I was kind of in the middle of the pack. But to see 200 young individuals making their first communion, and of course, first communion dresses were really important, all right. white, and <laughs> the boys in their white ties. and. Um, that probably had a big impact, and I tell the story about <laughs> me getting smacked with a ruler at, at at communion practice because the girl next to me didn't hear, and I kept saying, no, I'm not going to say anything, and then, of course, I said, shh, and I got caught, and then none came over and said, who said something? <laughs> <laughs> so that formative <laughs> relationship that, you know, we had in the 60s with our, our religious was certainly uh, something powerful, but at the same time, I laugh because... You know, you want to do everything right, and as an individual understanding what our faith journey was, it was always important to me, trying to figure out where God fit in my life, and at the same time, it was always important in my family. Um, the house that my parents built where we lived in Buffalo area had a little niche that my dad purposely put in there for a cross so that mm. at night we would kneel and say our night prayers before we went to bed. So it was really important to our family, although it wasn't ever discussed as far as where our faith was gonna take us and why it was so important. And mm. I think during the 60s, and my dad was first generation um, American. His family was from Italy and my mom's family was from Italy. So. Okay. I don't know if that played a role in it, but you know, I think about the Italians and how they're religious, how they profess the religion, and it is by their daily acts. Right. So it's not talked about a lot, but you do things like mm -hmm. you go to church together and you practice together, but it wasn't actively talked about, which I now think about and what would be different if I had a family. But that was good. It gave us the opportunity to explore things. Mm -hmm. I had four older brothers, so. Good and bad with that is they they kind of dropped out. They all went to parochial school, but at the same time, when it came to, there was a four-year gap, and I think the last three of us never did. But I think about how that impacted me on my desires once I came here mm. to keep exploring it. What does it mean? And learning more, you know. Back in the 60s, we just didn't do a lot of outside things. Yeah, and I think we're still grappling with that. There's the era of the Baltimore Catechism, and faith is something to memorize, <laughs> or, or not, but not to articulate or talk about otherwise. But then if you don't have the regular practice, then, right. then what do you have? And so how in the generations to follow, the tweaks and adjustments that we've made, because, you know, you hear sometimes unfortunate stories from that era of the strict, uh, the rulers, you know, with, the, with the, the religious sisters or whatever the case may be. And other times you just, you hear this desire, I think, which is very common. At some point you have to ask why, and you have to be able to say 
why this continues to be important to you and how do we equip people to do that I think is really really important yeah it's funny that you mentioned Baltimore because it came at the time when we were transferring and Vatican II is but the time that we were moving from Buffalo area to Chicago. So if you ask me about even our our CCD studies is that it was all Baltimore. You had to remember this and you had to memorize things. And then when I finally got to the Chicago area, I can remember having a young seminarian that wanted us to discuss things. And it was like, (laughs) wait a minute, okay. Hey, that makes sense. But at the same time, that the change in the way we learned about our faith and what did it mean to be Christ-like mm-hmm. that you didn't talk about when you had Baltimore Catechism. Yeah. Of course, I was young, but at the same time, you don't, I don't remember ever learning that part of it, like what was it to be Christ-like yeah. or what was it to desire mm-hmm. to be more like Christ. Mm-hmm. So it, it is a very interesting thing that you mentioned Baltimore. I had almost forgotten. Maybe that was a good thing. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> now, what was it like to be a twin growing up? I know that people appreciate that sometimes. Yeah, um, it's funny is, you know, when people used to ask, I, the first question was, I don't know. I never <laughs> was not a it twin. It was normal, right? <laughs> but it, it was unique in the family because it was also another girl in the family because mm-hmm. I had four older brothers and then the, my twin sister and I were the last in line. So a lot of traditional Italian customs were passed on. The boys would do outside work. The girls would do inside work. Mm-hmm. Um, we were try to do things in the house where the boys did learn all the the skills from dad outside so but at the same time having a twin sister meant you always had someone that was there yeah Um, we did everything together probably through high school Mm -hmm. Um, and then in high school we started to realize the differences of our personalities even um, in the sense of one she definitely was more uh, introverted than I was Mm. and certainly I enjoyed being involved with school so that I think in high school we learned to be able to be ourselves. Yeah, sure, sure, that makes sense. And you obviously have a love for education because that's been a lot of your life and career. What do you remember about education as a young person and thinking that, you know, this is really important and really, really reaches me? It was always important for me to learn. I always thought I was going to go into medicine when I was younger. So coming here to Notre Dame, um, you know, the first year, I think most of the women I knew were science. We all wanted to be doctors. We all wanted to go that direction. And that was the first couple years of women on campus. So there was kind of a mixed reception, I would say. Yeah. But I also realized that I was called to be working with people. But how that was going to happen, I, I never was sure. So I actually changed to psychology because I was always interested in working and, and talking with students and talking with others. I shouldn't say students at that point, but peers and just being um, with them. So ended up graduating with my psych degree. And then, like I said, is not being sure, I wanted to make sure and decided to go back for my master's and in science because I wanted to see if medicine was for me. Mm -hmm. A couple life-forming things were said to me, like, why are you getting your MS? You should be getting your MRS. And Mm -hmm. that still was going on. And at the same time, I had um, people that saw the talents in me and said, why aren't you looking at going into higher ed? Mm Because I was a teacher's assistant, and then I was also a 
graduate resident assistant. Mm -hmm. And my supervisor there said, Carol, have you ever thought about student affairs? So the desire to work with young adults really were developed at Niagara University in working with freshman nursing students, trying to allow them to understand why biochemistry and organic was so important to nursing students. Huh. And at the same time, nobody likes organic and, and right. biochem that had a wanted to help people like what do i need to learn this so to me that was really exciting and learning how to to make them excited about learning and at the same time also learning the skills of counseling um, yeah. i had a very 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 formative professors and then starting my career in student affairs so I guess education for me coming here when it was first women, sawing how women and men were treated differently. I mm -hmm. guess I never was able to verbalize that until much later. Mm -hmm. But, you know, watching in high school, the men having all the things that were given to them and the women struggling. We didn't have Title IX then and trying to work all that out. So you always were fighting for let's play intramurals or let's be on the women's basketball volleyball teams mm. um, and then when we came here obviously in 73 things changed a little bit but here being the first of the women also seeing that struggle how do we incorporate women into a male institution right. how do we allow them to have some of the same experiences and I never saw it and I guess I I'm very thankful for the all-female hall system here in the sense that it gives us an opportunity to to be confident and to, mm -hmm. to develop that competency mm -hmm. in leadership. So that came across, and like I said, as I have always been committed to women leadership, watching them develop, but also watching how sometimes the, um, men put women in their place. Mm -hmm. So it's been a definite learning experience for me and at the same time watching women develop sometimes I think we're no further along when I watch women defer to the men hmm. after they put a lot of the work into things hmm. so I always ask them did you realize you did this and they kind of look at me and are surprised but I wanted to get them involved it's one thing to get them involved but after you've done all the work giving them all the credit <laughs> right. somehow is is not what I would say is the best for you. But I, I think sometimes what we grow up with is how we determine our life and determine our values and determine how we work with others. Mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. But it's helping them. So definitely education has always been important, but definitely helping women understand their competencies sure. and their 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 worth, their intrinsic their, dignity. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and their skills, their talents, sure. and their gifts. Um, sometimes I think we're real, real easy to recognize the gifts in, in our male counterparts, mm. but sometimes in ourselves, it's really hard to see. I see. So I do want to touch on 50 years of women at, <laughs> at Notre Dame and the undergraduate population. Of course, we had some women here before that in the graduate population, but we're celebrating 50 years of that this spring, and you are one of those trailblazers. So going back to late high school when you were thinking about applying, where did Notre Dame factor into that, and did you at the time have the sense that you were going to be a trailblazer of some sort? Well, it never came up it like that, I guess. The story of Notre Dame was that, you know, I, I saw 
saw Newt Rockney when I was a young girl. Uh-huh. I, was, I still remember what chair I was sitting in watching it and telling my dad I was going to go to school there. Yeah. And, of course, yeah, yeah, it was the response, but not realizing that it was all male. And at the same time, when I was in high school, there was a lot of talk about the mergers between St. Mary's and Notre Dame, and it was looking good. It wasn't looking good, mm-hmm. and it was voted down. And I think they tried a couple times while I was in high school, and then finally, Father Hesburgh made the decision. I think when I was at between my sophomore junior year, that no, Notre Dame was going to go co-ed. It was important to his vision of mm-hmm. what the school was. Mm-hmm. And my family had a friend here who was working and said, hey, it looks like it is going to go co-ed. So my senior year, my fall semester, I decided to apply. And little did I know I would be a trailblazer for that second. Did I look at it as trailblazing? No, I think sometimes when we were on campus, you might have felt it because you wouldn't see another woman on campus when you walked across. So, you know, when the the students asked me what the difference is, I said, well, can you imagine walking across campus and not seeing another woman? And they'd look at, at you, and I said, and I can't think of a, a woman instructor until my junior year. Okay. So those things were slow to develop, but I think Father Hesburgh handled it so well in the sense of any time he did any events and the women were present, I know he always sought us out and said, what else can I do to make it home? Hmm. What else can I do to make it more comfortable? Mm-hmm. What else can I do? to make this transition. So I think he was aware of it was a great idea. And like he said, is it it taught the boys to be men Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, having that on campus. So it was kind of exciting in that sense. And, you know, uh, most of the women that came were looking to get involved in the same way the men were involved with campus, whether Mm -hmm. it was sports or student government or hall government, whatever it was. So I think those things kind of were natural because of the the gender relationships in the halls. It made it easier for the women to kind of get assimilated in in the lives here on campus. So it was exciting um, and I guess being on the women's rowing team was exciting all the teams most of the teams were club sports at initially I think my first year they may have had and it's funny to think about but I think it was um, field hockey and tennis and then fencing mm-hmm. were the three that kind of were pushing and then I joined rowing my sophomore year so I think we did things to kind of push the boundaries because we wanted the same opportunities Mm -hmm. and at the same time there was a lot of growing pains you know because it was the men's equipment it was the men's they were the men's things that we had to borrow yeah for all the sports I think and I think we were afterthoughts like I said as they were trying to figure out what to do with all these women (laughs) so it it was nice in that sense but you know I think about that to now and the opportunities that we women have on campus and it's just so exciting to mm-hmm. see the number of division one sports the basketball team sure uh, you know a couple years celebrated their big anniversary and watching that but having a lot of people in Farley be on that first team was really exciting yeah um, well and it's so interesting because I found this being at Notre Dame for a, a number of years now when you first come, 
related to what you said about being a twin. Well, I didn't know anything different. And so your your time at Notre Dame seems like, well, this is how Notre Dame has been for all time. But of course, that's not true. Change takes time, but you have the advantage of seeing that, you know, some of those early years living that as a woman on campus and then and and seeing the changes that are, that have taken place over time and you know, mostly for the good of yeah. uh, of better opportunities and and things like that. So I think you bring a really valuable perspective there. Of course, I want to get to the residence hall aspect of it because that later factored into your career. Where did you live on campus and what do you remember about those residence hall experiences that were formative for you? Well, I had the privilege of working with or being with Sister Jane yeah. Lenz. And like I said, is I think all of the, my style was that I always wanted to do things and be involved with things. So my my interactions with Sister Jean were certainly very positive in the sense I worked, you know, I was a hall council member. I was uh, worked food service. All the women's halls back then had them, you know. But being part of Farley and developing that kind of the traditions that we had mm-hmm. were important. But also the the craziness that comes with living life on campus. And the men trying to figure out how did how did they live, want to live life with women? Mm-hmm. For them, it was new and trying to incorporate it. So you know, it was back in the streaking days. It was back in the funny times when boys will be boys mm-hmm. in the college. And mm-hmm. at the same time, I think that's one of the reasons Father Hesper would always say he wanted women is so that they would mature into men sooner. Mm-hmm. And to also learn their the responsibilities and, and talents and things, I mm-hmm. think. So Farley provided a great opportunity, and I guess that gave me the basis for me in higher ed, how I wanted things and how important it was to provide those the opportunities for women and leadership roles. Um, you know, I had the privilege of working at co-ed schools, public schools in Pennsylvania, um, both Slippery Rock and Lock Haven University. But what happens at at a co-ed is very different than what happens in the intentional single-sex halls. Mm-hmm. But the basis and the philosophy and the values were always deep within me. And that the relationships were always so important. And when I taught the RAs, you know, skills and things like that. I always talked about how important it was students to connect and how important it was for them to matter, where I think that was taught to me from Sister Jean. Mm -hmm. And I can remember when I became assistant dean writing Sister Jean a note saying I never realized how important that influence was on me, but it's coming full circle now I'm providing that that education and trying to teach that to students yeah. where that was so important to me yeah I'm sure that meant a lot to her I mean yeah I still have the notes so yeah. it means a lot to me too to yeah. still have that uh, the response from her but yes yeah I had the chance to know sister Jean just for a little bit uh, at the end of her life and as a as an undergrad I had no idea the legend that she was and the influence that she had and only only until later hearing the stories of Sister Jean and all and all the women and, and people that she touched. It's one of those people we talk about holiness and you know she's a, a model of holiness for me because you can see the effect of of her life and her vocation and so many people that came through here. Yeah, she definitely lived the life of St. Francis for all of us and just was a presence that I don't know if 
if, and I'm going to say this, about any rector. You know, students are afraid of rectors. What the heck is that title? <laughs> and staff. But watching them live life with the students, I think, is crucial. And if we can somehow huh, frame that that position in in one of living life with the students instead of calling it a rector sometimes i wonder if that wouldn't be better and and students say that to me as carol we you know we viewed you as staff you right. know you're there for rules right and not living life with them and trying to develop that whole philosophy and how do you let them and you know as an older woman going into the residence halls i think that separation is sometimes even more staring at them at the face mm-hmm. but you no know, sister Jean was really good at living life with us and teaching us to be what we can be and I think that was important yeah that's great so you discussed how you thought you might be going one way in your career and then things took a different direction how did that impact you once you realized that I thought I might like to do this, but actually there's other people telling me and I'm, I'm seeing my own skills really flourish in this other area. How did you reconcile that? You know, I, I knew I was always meant to help others. And I don't know if I ever reconciled it because <laughs> uh, the funny part is, is one, after I got into the field of higher ed, I became a firefighter and an EMT. So right. I never got rid of that desire to, to work in helping people in crisis. Um, But at the same time, discerning what it was in my heart, it just felt when I started working in student affairs and studying and working with the college-age women at at Niagara, I had um, an off-campus site, and I had about uh, 350 women in different residence environments. I just realized how important it was for me to also understand my gifts to utilize them in my life. And I don't think anybody else understands when you're living with with college-age students, because I remember even when I lived in at Slippery Rock, my parents always said, well, how's school going? Instead of recognizing that right. it's more than it was a vocation sure, for me. Sure, And that understanding of what we do in the residence halls, and like I said, is not really realizing what Sister Jean had taught me, but my experience at Niagara, I was able, because they were single-sex halls, and then going to... Um, Slippery Rock, I first worked in a 250 all-women's hall, but then went to a 660 co-ed hall. Mm. But realizing the things that mattered for the women really mattered for the men in the sense of us having the intentional relationships with them. And I can remember some of my colleagues, um, I used to have opening picnics for the students, and we invited different resources like counselors and athletic people. And I can remember one of the counselors walked up to me and said, Carol, did you realize that that whole football game, there was a group of guys that just made sure that no one touched you, (laughs) that they were protecting you. And I said, that's the relationships that I built with the students that, Mm -hmm. yeah, they want to have a good time, but they also were very protective of me. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, to me, that's them learning. Yeah. So many things that are so exciting. But like I said, is I guess that love just kept developing stronger and stronger Mm -hmm. and then moving up the ladder and you can only live in for so long and I guess it was 
my young 30s when I realized, okay, this is enough, and I needed to start looking at living my life, too, and whether family was going to be in it or not, and then also um, being able to to mentor younger resident directors Mm -hmm. or other people in the field. So Mm -hmm. becoming an assistant dean and an associate dean and then finally dean of students was definitely in my my cards and definitely made a difference Mm -hmm. to who I was. Mm -hmm. Mm And where did your faith factor into all this? You mentioned how your faith was important to you, and of course that's a big reason why I asked you to, to be on the podcast. How did your faith inform that vocation? Uh, you know, God has always been a force for me, that desire to know Him better. Mm-hmm. And part of that is also knowing how God is seen in others. And not all things that happen in college are great. Some of them are really difficult and some of them are challenging. But finding God's love still in that and finding God's love in me to help someone through those struggles. I think that was really always a push for me. When you beca- I was an assistant dean, I became in charge of discipline, and nothing is worse. And you know, you say that to students, and they fear you. Mm-hmm. But under- understanding that you can do it in a loving way, and I realized that students didn't always understand why rules were rules and why we were concerned about their outcomes and their behavior and learning how to help them was so important. But at the same time, also becoming very involved with my spiritual direction at that point in time, Mm -hmm. um, finding a priest that really understood where my heart was Mm -hmm. and challenging me. Mm -hmm. Like, what is it that you need to do personally and what do you you need to do professionally in this sense? But at the same time, how do I I mix that and how do I exhibit that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that was important at that time. Great. And... In a sense, I mean, you had really climbed the ladder and became a a prominent leader. What drove your decision to come back to Notre Dame, to to re-enter the fray, so to speak, of of living with students? Well, I I tell the parents at the opening talk that I we used to uh, give to the parents sure. is that I failed miserably at retirement. <laughs> I was still pretty young and um, the reason I had retired was the direction of student affairs in the public system of higher ed in Pennsylvania was getting rid of those connecting mm. pieces. Mm. The important parts I felt, the student activities, the student counseling, the the so-called soft vocations, um, the involvement with the students and having the relationships with the students. And it was real clear that the funding for the universities was getting less and less and they were cutting more and more. And the president had a different vision about how students and how student affairs should be. Mm. Um, he didn't ever understood student affairs and didn't understand how important that was to the retention part of school. Sure, He had done, like I said, made some cuts and I, I saw, maybe I saw the writing on the wall that they were continuing to cut. And I finally said, I'm, I'm done mm. after 30 years in the state system. But I also was under 60 and it was like, mm, does it, is this right or not? And then I was taking care of my brother who was ill at the time and was looking for jobs in sure. higher ed, but thinking I was going to stay where I was in, in middle of Pennsylvania because I had a home there. 
and all of a sudden the job was there and it said you know Notre Dame's looking for rectors and I knew what a resident director was I knew what living in was and sent my cover letter and resume to Father Pete right <laughs> and the next thing I knew is he had tried to call me but I was with my brother for about three weeks because of uh, just helping him and then I got back and he was on the road because I think he was involved with he might have been traveling with the men's basketball team okay. or something yeah. and by the time we connected I ended up on campus during the women's final four watching women Notre oh, wow. Dame women on camp well they were they might have been playing UConn because I remember going to Roars and watching it on TV <laughs> and then um, having the interview process so I knew I still had more to do and nothing for me is more important than being with the students. Mm -hmm. So I knew that's what I love doing. I was done making decisions. I was done being the one that was trying to fight mm -hmm. all the time for, for the best interest of the students. And I also understood that sometimes you have to do things because that's what they ask us to do. Mm -hmm. So I was at that point where I just wanted to, to work with students. And so when it was offered to me, there was no better thing to do than to put my house up for sale and to move. Yeah. <laughs> move 400 miles away from home. Wow. So. A leap of faith for sure, but in some ways a homecoming for you. Correct. It yeah. definitely was, um, as I told the students when I announced my retirement, that it was going to be two to three years. And then eight years later, <laughs> it finally said, Carol, you're not getting any younger. Yeah. <laughs> well, we've had a couple of rectors on. Father Pete McCormick has been on. Uh, he talked about life as a rector, but also directing campus ministry and all that. But People sometimes marvel at the life of the rector that you would you would choose to do that. And I also think that we do ask our rectors a, a little bit more than you might see right. in like a, a hall director at a state school or something like that. It's not just logistics and safety. It is very much relational. And living with, you talked about living life with the students and being there for all their joys and their challenges, the hiccups that they see, sometimes the unexpected things. What have you learned about yourself and the students here in your time as a rector? Oh, wow. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think the desire to make a difference has always been something important at Notre Dame. I think the imposter syndrome kind of takes over for our freshmen mm -hmm. in that I'm not as good as everybody else right. is, you know, and part of it might be the media and certainly their tie-in now to technology with Instagram and Facebook or whatever else they're using nowadays, mm -hmm. uh, GroupMe or Slack or whatever else. I, I think it's really hard and, and trying to sit down with individuals and saying, Carol, I'm just not as good and it's like well why do you say that well look at this look at this and I was like well do you think people put it down when they're having a hard time when mm -hmm. they're having difficulties or when things aren't the ideal right and then they start to think about things and I believe that that's what we need to keep saying to them is that nobody tells tells you when they're having the difficult time. Mm -hmm. And even thinking about what the freshmen go through that first six weeks, right? There's not a single freshman that doesn't miss home. Mm -hmm. It's all the familiarity that we haven't built yet here. And I think saying those things to them 
and having them sit down and talk well what are you missing about home and what things are important and what would you be doing if you were at home Mm -hmm. giving them that opportunity i think is really important so i think those things are are really important you know the differences that we (laughs) our job isn't nine to five or whatever Mm -hmm. it's 10 to midnight, one o'clock in the morning. And you say that to people and they kind of look at you, but it really is. They drop in, they talk to you, they want to pet the dog, mm-hmm. they want they want to spend time. And at the same time, it's the conversations you have with them that help them discern what they want in life and how are they going to talk to their parents about difficult situations mm-hmm. and how are they going to talk to their significant others. and those things are really important and providing that one-on-one opportunity or experiences whether it's crafts with carol or reflecting on on readings for lent or whatever it is having that time with them individually is so important Mm -hmm. and i think that's probably one of the great things about our residential life program is having people that truly care mm-hmm. about our residents. Um, is it a demanding job? Yeah. Is it a job that it can become a job? And I, I, I would say those that have a difficult time with it, it's not a vocation. Mm. It is a job, and I, I tell, I told the students this, and I, you know, I believe it is that. You don't have to work a day in your life if you're being called to do something. Mm-hmm. And that's what I really felt about student affairs for me is that it was vocation. It was, I was excited about getting up in the morning mm-hmm. and going to work mm-hmm. as that happened. And I realized that not everybody has that privilege. Right. And to me, it was a privilege to, to work with the students, to be with them, to walk with them. And I think that's... I hope that's what my residents would say, is that Carol wanted to be with us and wasn't Mm -hmm. a job. Yeah. Yeah, when it gets to that depth of vocation, there's a grace there and there's a capacity to give there and to love that you wouldn't have known otherwise unless this really resonates with you and you're being being led, you know, and and fed by God in this. So I'm glad to hear for you that you've had the chance to, to do that. You talked about your passion for women and leadership and development of their skills, all those things. And I would imagine you've had a chance to see that a little bit as you think about back to your first classes of, of students that all of a sudden they've graduated and, and are starting to you know, early in their career, but going on to things. Has that been gratifying for you to just see them develop and flourish? Yes. Um, you know, I, you think about some of the freshmen that I know cried and cried and this isn't the right place for me I Carol I I'll give it a try but it's not the right place for me and four years later you see them graduating and and thriving and giving back to the university and excited about what the future holds whereas you know four years ago you would say I don't know if they're gonna make it but we're gonna do everything we can for them to believe in themselves and at the same time also the ones that are on the fringe I always say it's the average student that I was always concerned about because they kind of blend in Mm. 
sort of push them to do what they want to or to do what they're passionate about, whether it's a sport or whether it's a leadership position. Those things were really important to me. And looking at the marginalized students, I think we, we do a great job taking care of them. And our superior students find those things. And mm-hmm. our underserved areas students, I think they find support. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it's the middle students that I mm-hmm. think um, just need a little bit of push. <laughs> did you think about this? And all of a sudden they look at you as, wow, did you really say that to me? Yeah, I want you to think about it. So sometimes I think about those things. And certainly I, I, it's not I forget about our two extremes either. But sometimes the average student just kind of get overlooked because they're going to survive. Sure, yeah, yeah. I, I found that to be the most uh, rewarding. And then, like you said, as now a, a lot of the first students that I had are graduating from medical school and are getting married and having babies and those things are exciting to watch them grow and mm-hmm. mature and to see them living life yeah. and and having the fullness of it, what it can be. So. Yeah. Yeah, that's such a gift that I think it's not unique to education, but when you're in the educational field, it's yeah. there's an extra reward there of being able to, I mean, we, we each have one life to live, but to see, it brings you joy to see other people flourishing in their lives. Right, right. See how they, how they become young men and women mm-hmm. is so exciting. Yeah. Of course, life is not all joy, though. There is challenge. What have been some of the challenges in your life and even as your life as a rector where faith has helped you with that? I went through a a real difficult time, probably in the early 2000s. I lost both my parents within six months. And then a couple years later, my brother passed away and I was diagnosed with breast cancer for the first time. And it just challenged me in the sense of who I was and was I doing God's work and was I doing what I needed to do. In the sense of working with the students, working with the church, I was involved with parish council and Red Cross and city council and things like that. But did they have meaning and did they have purpose? And those things all came to head then in trying to figure out what it was that I would t- was to do, mm-hmm. you know. But at the same time, my spiritual directors certainly was supportive in and knew the difficulties, and at the same time encouraged me to try different things, whether it was my prayer life or, or living my life. Um, how could I do do better in in my life? And I think those things made me stronger in the sense of learning to say no. Mm-hmm. Um, in a lot of ways, um, I started my doctorate at that point in time, which probably was the push to really consider what was right and wrong with the, the things I wanted to uh, pursue, as well as things that I wanted to learn. So I believe my faith was was challenged a lot um, mm-hmm. in the sense of, you know, why why are all these things happening and why why so heavy. And at the same time, it was in that heaviness that I learned about how important my prayer life was. And that probably was the saving grace in all of that. Mm. So I think about those things and what it taught me and then how do I 
capture that again. The good part is is that it made me really strong. And at the same time, as I tell students, as our journey goes up and down, mm-hmm. you know, we take hills and we take valleys, and how do we how do we strive for that? Like I said, as if I think about all the positive that came out of it, I still strive for that, the feeling of being close to God during that the most difficult times. Yeah, there's such a paradox there of you'd never want to live through it again. Right. But the fact that you lived through it, there was grace there that you probably wouldn't have had access to otherwise. Correct. Correct. I, and I think it helped me when I did retire from Lock Haven during that transition is what are you going to do? And still being under 60 and still knowing I wanted to serve and at the same time understanding that that whole saying of God closes a door but opens another and I can remember that feeling of when I got the call from Father Pete that hey we want you here and I was like I feel great about that. <laughs> what the heck, you know, and people not understanding why you would want to go back and live with with young adults. But at the same time, it just felt right. And I know that part was part of probably my prayer life and the recognition that God presented something to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess, you know, people say, well, Carol, wasn't that taken a little bit too far? And I said, I don't know. I really believe that it was being guided at that point mm-hmm. and being open to what I could do here. So, Well, and the fact that you thought this might just last a few years, but it's lasted more than that. You're right. Uh, you know, there's some confirmation there. Obviously, I think of what you've been able to offer students but I hope also how you've been fulfilled in this role. Correct. It's been a wonderful role. I was diagnosed with my second bout with breast cancer here. Mm. And to find the students, how they rebounded and how they provided support in ways that you don't, you don't find elsewhere in the sense that because we're living life with them, the, their gentleness, their caring, their their extreme love. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just very touching and very um, rewarding. And that was uh, after, what, two years, three years here? So t- to live through that and, and be with them during a difficult time, but them also living with me and um, understanding the role as a as a I don't know, maybe as a daughter, as a whatever you want to say, I think that was a very meaningful time to me, but also very life teaching and teaching life to students that things don't always go this perfect way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can survive and you can be a thriver and you still can do things. So I think that was important. Yeah, I think sometimes, obviously we have increasing number of students who might be first gen or uh, who, who have gone through a lot of hardship but there's another s- section of students who everything has gone right in their life in terms of their family stability their academic success their extracurricular success because they got into notre dame and yet of course we all run into those human limitations that we have or the unexpected crisis i think that's you're witnessing to them uh, this aspect of this doesn't change fundamentally who I am as a woman of faith or what I'm about. 
and I'm I, this all right I'm gonna you know live through this challenge in the same way that I've lived through some of these others right right so it, it it's been exciting and just thinking about how they respond to us as individuals you know when the first dog passed away suddenly the response from the residents was just unbelievable mm. he was just as much a part of their lives <laughs> as they knew he was a part of my life yeah but the responses can't believe he's gone but it was their pet too and to me you're right you don't recognize that life lesson at the time but their response to losing a a good member of the community was like oh my gosh carol i really miss him yeah Yeah, me too you know (laughs) but um it was it was good and like i said is certainly living life with us is is the important part as a rector and Mm -hmm. our residents And you shared with me earlier that you're approaching another transition point. Would you mind telling us about that? Yeah, um, I finally have decided to try retirement for the second time. <laughs> 2.0 here. <laughs> 2.0 is correct. The, uh, the difficult part is, is as we get older and the long hours that residents keep, and um, you realize that it's beyond my ability to be the best Mm -hmm. that I can be for the students. So I have decided that I am stepping away from being a rector. I'm excited about a program that the Student Affairs Department is starting. It's uh, staff and residents that I'm hopefully gonna be living in um, Fisher and working with Father Pete and providing spiritual opportunities and journeys and growth opportunities for our graduate residents Mm. at Fisher apartments. So I'm excited about that. And it's also going to give me an opportunity to go from maybe speeding at 60 miles an hour to slowing down to maybe 20 or 30 (laughs) and not maybe then following I can slow down completely to to really enjoying uh, being fully retired. And what does that mean for me? So yeah, well, that's wonderful that you're found a new outlet to continue (laughs) to give of yourself. So thank you for your continued service in that way, and I think I'm sure you'll be an asset and and a, another trailblazer. I'm excited way. about it. Yeah, yeah. It, it's very exciting because um, hopefully I'm thinking you know long term is am I going to get back involved with parish councils? Um, mm. I'm moving to a completely new area, so I don't have a lot of the. Uh, relationships formed but as we all know churches are always looking for people to get involved so hopefully if this is something that I really enjoy that I can jump in when I fully retire and get involved with a new community. Wonderful, wonderful. So. So I do want to turn to holiness because that's our podcast's final topic. Who have been some of the models of holiness in your life as you think back to a long time ago or more recently, just the holy people who have really inspired you in your life. As funny as it sounds, I hope, Father Hesburgh was a very Mm -hmm. instrumental person. Um, His demeanor, his peacefulness, his ability to to bring the Holy Spirit to anything he did was just so apparent to me from my freshman year to even as I came back and met him with him as a, a rector of my first year. His his presence was just so peaceful and his his simplicity taught me that you didn't have to be doing something to be holy. Hmm. 
his presence was a holiness. And I said, it. he just brought that peace no matter what he did. He made you feel like you were the most important person in standing in front of him. Yeah. Even if it was a room full of people, but his presence, even on the altar, there was just something very holy. And I see that, I saw that when I was a freshman, and I saw that as when I came back as a rector and met with him in the summer of 2014 before he passed away. Mm. You know, that, that holiness, that peacefulness, that that contentment with life, mm-hmm. which to me is that is that holiness. So he was a very strong and powerful example of Christ. Um, Sister Jean, like I said, lived life. Just watching her in her love that she gave to everyone. Mm-hmm. And my spiritual director was very important to me. Um, came in at a really important time. I was still young enough to learn about what it meant to be holy and what it meant to be prayerful and what it meant to be on the journey. And then coming back to Notre Dame, I think it's just given me that space to contemplate on how we can be examples and how important that is for for us to live our lives as continuing examples of Christ um, in good and bad times and difficult times and you know, the last couple of years with COVID, I guess that might have made us a little bit questioning how do we live out Christ's life mm. during this challenging time. Yeah, it really, it, it forced us to confront some of those questions. As you have sought after a life of holiness, what have been some of the things that have been effective for you in, in trying to, to achieve that? Wow. I think it's involvement in making a difference. For me, that was so important. And I guess for a long time when I asked that question and tried to seek that out, even in the most difficult situations when you're getting ready to suspend students or you know ask students to take time off, it's always what would Christ do and what would Jesus have done mm. if we were sitting here with him and that he was in this room? What would he ask of that person? Of what would he ask of me and how can you best support? So I think those were... That was probably the the gift that I was I used in recognizing that that was a question that had to guide guide me in some of the most difficult decisions. Even stepping away from student affairs as a, a dean, kind of was like, no, God wouldn't want me to stay in a place where it wasn't being supportive of our students or wasn't being in the loving nature or cutting students off of things. Yeah. So I. I, I really do believe that that was a instrumental value or a, a philosophy that I said is, you know, if it's not following God's desires, then it can't be the right thing for me to be doing. Mm-hmm. In a lot of ways, I think that was important for me to to recognize as well as to utilize in my responsibilities and, and duties as a as dean, as, as rector now, mm-hmm, I think. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned prayer. What what kinds of prayer have been your favorite, and, you know, have you gotten in touch with God the best? The most peaceful I felt is when I was doing um, The Office. I mm-hmm. think that provided me a lot of guidance, like 
to direct the day um, and then also conclude it and really to think about how how we lived our life each day. Unfortunately, I've gotten away from that. But <laughs> It's tough in the rector life. To... Yeah. But I think about the other times when it's been peaceful and I I tell students that, you know, you can find prayer in our everyday life and they look at you like, when I take Callie for a walk, I find it very peaceful and what do you think about or what do we pray about as you walk? I used to do it as I rode on mm -hmm. the river is every, it's just a very rhythm activity, but praying as you do things. And I think sometimes we look for conventional ways of doing things mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and they don't always work yeah and right now it's it is finding the quiet time and taking the dog for a walk or going by the grotto or walking around the lakes and realizing first of all all that have walked before us and that all that will walk behind us in the sense of praying for that and going up to the cemetery and visiting father Hesburgh and father green and some of the other priests that may have had uh, impact on me that you just don't recognize until after that fact. Mm -hmm. So I think prayer takes different forms for us at different times in our lives. And, and right now, yeah, it, for me, it's a struggle, but I find th that those peaceful walks, those, that time alone, the time in the chapel when you can be by yourself mm -hmm. is, is very important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's continuing to build that relationship with God through prayer and whatever we can. And, and it really, as, as we close this discussion, this theme of relationship uh, it kept coming into my mind because there were so many relationships that you had uh, in your early life and as you came to Notre Dame and talked about Sister Jean and Father Ted and so many, and, and yet you have not held those close. You've given of yourself, and, and you've had so many relationships with our students and, and you've, you've contributed to their lives in ways that they probably may not realize until later, but it's been a beautiful, it's been a beautiful gift. And so I just want to say thank you, Carol, for your time today on the podcast, and thank you for all you've given Our Ladies University, trailblazed in a, in a number of ways and will continue to give. It's just a, a real privilege to know you and to share your, a bit of your story with our audience today. Well, thank you for it, and it's been a privilege and a, a pleasure to work here at Our Ladies Institution, that's for sure. Great. Thanks so much. Well, that concludes this episode of Everyday Holiness, a Faith Indie podcast. We, of course, invite you to rate the podcast if you've enjoyed it, to subscribe to it at a service of your choosing, and to share it with anyone who you might think could benefit from this story. And as always, we invite you to sign up for our daily gospel reflection at faith.nd.edu slash sign up. Until next time, you'll bring in our prayers, and thanks for joining us. Mm -hmm.